Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, lead pastor Josh Karstensen continues a series on the life of David. We all have some part of our history that we are embarrassed by, ashamed of, and maybe even haunted by. We've all done things we know we shouldn't have, and we've thought things we know we shouldn't. What do we do with these shameful memories? Do they matter? Does God see them? Does he forgive them? As we see in the story of King David's greatest fall, God meets him in his failure. David repents and God forgives. This Thanksgiving weekend, let's give thanks for God's generosity and forgiveness. Also, as part of the Something to Say series, we'll start the message with someone's testimony. We hope you find it encouraging. Now, here's today's message. Hey church, my name's Ellis Wilson, and I've been at Northwest Hills for about five months. Following Jesus has changed my life, that in the last six months, my entire worldview has changed. It all kind of began back when I was in New Zealand, it's where I met my now wife. We were both atheists, Uh, I would say I was a devout atheist, which is kind of funny to see where I am now. We met her parents, they arrived, uh, they came to visit, and when they visited, They started talking to me about Jesus, and I thought it was going to be a piece of cake doing those arguments because how could I not win? (laughs) Because I thought it was so dumb. So I thought, you know, it won't be hard to win that argument. Uh, I definitely, I didn't feel like I lost because I was arrogant, but I definitely knew I didn't win. And that's kind of what opened my mind to thinking about Christ and exploring the truth. Um, Fast forward, came to the US with Madison, we got married, and shortly before that, I was reading some apologetics books, they were suggested by Jimmy, Jimmy Cleary, and uh, Marcus and Karen, and reading those, and I (laughs) described it as an existential crisis, (laughs) Um, because all of a sudden everything that I believed was turned on its head. I thought everything was random, there was no point to life a little nihilistic to find out that there was a God and to think about what that meant really changed how I viewed the world and the lens that I looked at everything changed and I knew that there was no going back to you know Ellis 1.0 and then the question was asked what do you do about Jesus that's obviously a big question I guess one thing that has really stood out to me was Josh's sermon about Um, showing love and the heart following action and that you don't follow your heart the heart follows you and that's really stuck with me because just acknowledging that God existed and that I want to follow Jesus didn't make me necessarily love God and just the knowledge that I can you know spend time in the word spend time in prayer joining a community group doing those things my heart will follow and begin to love God and I've saw that happen and it's been a noticeable change in my heart, which is awesome, that's, that's great. So it's working. <laughs> yeah, following Jesus definitely changed my life just by the change in my worldview. The lens that I look at the world now is completely different. Even as simple as I'm a big hiker and going out on a hike, I'm not just looking at random trees, plants, I'm looking at God's creation. Um, it, puts, it puts things into perspective and gives me a real appreciation for God's creation. I'm really thankful to God for 
sending me to New Zealand, a boy from England goes to New Zealand and I meet my wife there. Never would have thought that I would end up at you know, Albany, USA. Uh, and here I am and I just want to thank God for putting the people who really helped me to pursue God. Um, you know, it's got Jimmy, Jimmy Cleary, Marcus and Karen Wilcox. God speaking through them has been immensely helpful, um, really supportive, very patient, very patient, <laughs> because I was probably very annoying, <laughs> very arrogant. It's a very clear path that I've been put on. Um, I don't believe I met Madison by accident. It's, there's too many coincidences for it to be a, an accident, and God's plan has been incredible. Um, it's just really cool to see where I've come from and how I got here. And, the greatest thing of all is now that I'm a believer and I'm, you know, I'm saved. That's just really cool. I would say the biggest pieces of encouragement I can give to, I guess, one, people talking to other atheists who don't believe in God, is that I was a devout atheist. And here I am getting baptized, you know, going to church, going to community group. It can be done. It's possible. You just got to trust God. I know that. I know the people were spending time in prayer. Uh, my wife is not a follower of Christ, um, but I believe I was put in her path for a reason, and I believe I was saved along the way. And for anyone who is a new Christian, I would just say you don't have to know everything. Or, like you don't have to know everything straight away. There's a lot you don't know. I feel like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Don't feel overwhelmed. Just keep praying. Keep spending time in the Word study the Bible, you'll be, you'll be fine. Trust God. Man. Ellis, that was, that was awesome. Jimmy, way to be faithful. Uh, way to share what you love, man. It's awesome. My name is Josh Carsonson. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are reading along, I, we don't have a Bible reading plan in your journals, but I'm just telling you as we go, this week, read 2 Samuel 11 through 15. So go ahead and read that uh, while you are preparing for next week. And um, while you are writing that note down, we are going to start in 2 Samuel 11. It's going to take me a minute to get there because I got a bit of a story today, and it's Thanksgiving, so I figured I can tell a little bit of a longer story. And I don't think I warned you this hour, I think I said it second hour, that I have a bit of a confession to make. And so this story is me making a bit of a confession and before you jump to conclusions, and before you are like wildly concerned about your pastor, just know that I need the gospel just as much as everyone else. I have been forgiven for this, so I have the freedom to share a little bit of a story that happened to me this last summer. So um, uh, I was born in the Central Valley, California. I try not to say that too loudly because it's kind of an embarrassing place to be born in. But my family moved away, thank God, to Northern California. Uh, I grew up in Humboldt County. But when I left, I left as a seven-year-old. I left my best friend. And leaving your best friend is super hard if any of you have ever had to move away. Uh, this is a close friend. Uh, my mom and his mom were close friends. His name's Kevin. And, and we spent a lot of time when we were younger. But then we moved away and we didn't spend that much time together. We spent, you know, a couple times a year, you get to see each other. But over the years, we began to kind of drift apart. Uh, we began to like very different things. 
He loved sleeping in. He loved video games. He loved staying inside. And I love the opposite of all those. I love waking up early. I hate video games. And I love being outside. And so we kind of just drift apart, as people do who don't see each other for many years. Uh, but then after college, and I, I didn't see him at all during college. And then after college, uh, I was getting married. And I thought, you know what? It'd be great to have Kevin in my wedding. Um, I have a lot of current friends. Uh, I've got some college friends. And man, it would just be great to have him in my wedding. And he, he was, and it was great. We had a really neat time. And then I didn't see him for 17 years. Uh, didn't talk to him, didn't see him. Uh, but I ran into him last summer. Uh, we were at Hume Lake. My whole extended family was there at a Christian camp down in California. And my mom one afternoon, she goes, you will not guess who I saw uh, this morning. I saw Kevin and he's married and he has kids and it's so great. And I'm like, oh, sweet. I'll get to see him. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this moment. And so, you know, it's a small enough camp that I, I assume like I'll run into him at some point. And sure enough, the, the next day, uh, I run into him, and, and it's my wife, it's our three kids, I've got three daughters, 11, 9, and 7, and we're walking up from the lake to the cabin, and, and I see him, and he looks the same, he's got gray hair, I look the same, I got no hair, I'm like, oh, sweet, and, and I assume that was a wife, and he's got some kids, and there were some friends, and they've got kids, and, and we're greeting, and I see him, and we give each other this huge hug, and oh man, I haven't seen you in 17 years, I haven't talked to you in 17 years, and, and I'm introducing him, like, oh yeah, you met Megan at our wedding, uh, you haven't met my kids, and, and who are these people with you, and we're, we're introducing each other, and, and three minutes in, like three minutes in, he goes, hey, there are three very distinct memories that I have of our friendship. I was like, oh, cool, cool, yeah, what are they? And he goes, well, the first one is... Man, when, when you prayed with me and you led me to the Lord, I thought, oh, man, that, that's, that's awesome. Like, that's powerful. Like, uh, I'm kind of like, hey, kids, did you hear? Like, when I was younger, I don't know. I'm, like, I'm just saying. Like, it's a thing. And he's like, oh, great. And, and he says, and then, and then the second memory I have is, uh, man, uh, I came up to camp with you, and you encouraged me to get baptized. And, and you were there. And, and that was just like a really meaningful moment in my life. And again, I'm feeling like pretty good about myself in this moment. I'm like, I'm pretty thankful. I'm like, man, I'm so glad that like I've had some impact on someone and, and this friendship is meaningful and significant. And then he goes, and the last member I have was from your bachelor party. Um, he goes, yeah, do you remember at your bachelor party um, when you guys shot that wild boar in the middle of the night and you brought it back to the barn and and you, you hung it up, and, uh, and you guys were stabbing the boar. I was like, you know, I don't really remember that part. Like, you know, I remember, like, yes, we shot this boar. And he's like, and then all of you wanted me to stab the boar, and I didn't want to. And you guys, like, pinned me to the ground and smeared a bunch of the blood all over my face. Do you remember that? And I'm like, oh, gosh, I I really don't remember. And, and I'm having this moment where I'm like, Did the, is, is he joking? Did this actually happen? Like, I just saw you like three minutes ago. I got my kids here. Like, this, this, I think that's in a book, right? Lord of the Flies. Like, I don't, I don't know that. My wife goes full on wife mode. And she's like, Kevin, I am so sorry. What Josh did was wrong. Like, full on, I'm not joking. She's like full on apologizing. I'm like half laughing, half like, 
I'm sorry, that's horrible. Did we really do that? Like, I have no recollection of this at all. And man, it, it was just kind of awkward at that moment. It's like, okay, well, man, have a great week. And I, I, I go back up to our cabin, and it doesn't help that I'm telling the story to my sister and her, uh, her husband. My sister's a, a therapist, and her husband's a social worker. And my sister's like, yep, talks to people like this all the time, like serious, serious wounds. Um, the truth is, I'm going to make a bit of a transition here. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more of that story in a second, but we all, we all have things in our life that we look back on that we're, let's be honest, we're embarrassed of, right? Like we all have things in our life. You're like, did I really do that? Um, I, I wish I didn't do that. Like that sounds horrible and harsh and cruel. And why would anyone do that? Um, but there are things with all of us in our lives that we look on and we just go, God, that's, that's, that's not who I want to be. Uh, there are things that we think in our minds that if we were to say them out loud, uh, that if other people were to, know, were to know what's going on in our minds, we would be embarrassed of. Uh, all of us, at some level, struggle with what we call sin, uh, doing things that we ought not to do, uh, doing things on purpose that we ought not to do, doing things intentionally, unintentionally. We all have things in our life. Today, we're going to look at a story um, of King David, and we're going to look at the greatest moment of his life where he fails. And this is a moment that we look at and we go, man, what do you do with that? Uh, what does God feel about this failure? Uh, it's Thanksgiving. We might as well talk about absolute utter failure. Um, what is God's heart towards us when we have memories in our lives that we look back on and we go, man, I, I wish that wasn't the case. Uh, we're going to see the greatest king of Israel uh, and this is, this is our sixth week of a 10-week series, we're going to see this moment here where David's just going to become undone. And um, what I really want to walk away with isn't stories of failure, um, isn't stories of, yeah, we have all done things, but I, what I really want to walk away with today is stories of, men. isn't God good in his kindness and his forgiveness? Um, it's Thanksgiving, and there's a lot of reasons to be thankful for. But more than anything, I want us to be thankful that God is a God who forgives. Um, if God isn't a God who forgives, we have no gospel. We have no story of Christianity. We have no hope from the past. We have no hope for the future. But today we're going to see something very different. So what happened to David? By the way, Kevin and I uh, had a great week together. I saw him multiple times afterwards. His whole family came up to our house. We hung out. He and I went out for coffee. We did a hike together. I apologize. We are good. Life is great, I think. So Kevin and I, friends, once again, yes, we all have things in our closets. So David, here we go. Uh, let's go 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me? And we're going to read from God's word. And when I'm done, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. And if you're going to say thanks be to God. Here we go. Second Samuel 11 verse one. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabab. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can grab a seat. Kind of a weird passage to say, thank you, Lord. Right? Thanks be to God. But at the same time, like, actually kind of a really good passage to know that this is in the Bible and why. It's really good to know that this is in the Bible because it's consistent with how we see life, how we experience life. The Bible is very real. It doesn't hide anything. Um, It doesn't try to portray David as someone who he wasn't. Uh, David was very much a man in need of a savior, and we're going to see that today. But it's also a story that's pretty disillusioning. It's a story that's confusing. It's a story that, wait a second, I thought this was David, the man after God's own heart. I thought this was the chosen king of Israel who God said, this would lead my, he would lead my people. Why is this happening? Right? This is not a good story for David. Right? And, and let's be honest, it's not a good story for Bathsheba. Right? And it doesn't matter um, her involvement in the story. It, it's not good for her. Right? And Man, in trying to understand, we, we know a lot about David in the story. We don't know a ton about Bathsheba. And you can ask yourselves a lot of questions. And, and I tried to investigate a little bit over the last few weeks. Like, what's her role? And, and everyone's got a different take, right? Was she absolutely innocent? Probably. Potentially. Maybe. Was she a willing participant? Maybe. Potentially. Right? Was she an instigator? I don't know. Right? The truth of the matter is, the text doesn't say. And when the text doesn't say, I think it's best not to guess. I think we just got to look at what the text says. And what the text looks at is the text looks at David's sin. And the text says that David did something tremendously wrong. But as we're looking at this story and we're looking at what David did, I want to recognize a couple different things. For one, I want to recognize that this incident does not happen in a vacuum. Uh, this incident, while you may think, oh my goodness, this is just out of nowhere. How does David do this? He was such this great man. How does he go from king of Israel to all of a sudden sleeping with someone else's wife? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens through a series of compromises in David's life, just like it happens in your and I's life, right? We don't go from everything's going great to epic failure in one step most of the time. Most of the time, it's a long series of short compromises that say, you know what, I'm not following the Lord in this area of my life, and I feel like I'm getting away with it. And I'm not following the Lord in this area of my life, and I feel like I'm getting away with it. Right? There's, for every single one of us in this room, there are areas in our life that we are not following the Lord like we know we ought to be. Right? And when we do that for a season of time, we start to build in us a worldview that says, maybe God doesn't really pay attention. Maybe God doesn't really care because it seems to me that I'm doing whatever I want and God doesn't really seem to be too involved, which eventually leads to these bigger failures, which we're going to see in the life of David. So what are some of these small compromises that David makes? And what are the, some of the small compromises that you and I make? Because again, we all make them. Let's start. We're going to look at two of them. We're going to look at two things that David was doing that led to this point. The first one I said I would come back to it last week uh, is something that happens right after David becomes king. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
Um, right after he becomes king, he does a number of things. We talked about a few of them last week. Let's look at another one of them this week, starting in verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's where we ended last week, and so let's pick it up next verse. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So far, so good, right? God is uh, using another nation, a foreign dignitary, to build David a house. They build him this great home, and he's a great leader. All is going well until you hit verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Hmm? Wait, what? I got, everything seems to be going pretty well. And then you read verse 13, and you're like, wait a second. Like, David knows that he's not supposed to do that. Like, da- David knows, like, from all the way back to the beginning, God's creation, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, brings them together in one union. A husband shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? That, that's two. Like, that's been God's established plan forever. Not only, if that wasn't clear enough, God has a specific rule for kings. Right? For 500 years, God gave this rule to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. God spells it out in crystal clarity. Hey, king, future king of Israel, I know you're not going to get one for a long time, but when you finally get a king in your rebellion against me, here's how the king is to behave. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read a chunk here. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so here's Saul, now here's David. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. They want someone who loves the Lord, basically. Verse 16, listen carefully. He, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said to you, you shall never return that way again. And 17 is clear. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Number two, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. God says to the future king, hey, here's the deal. Here's your inclination. Your inclination is going to be to chase two things. Your inclination is going to be to chase money and women. And if you are going to be the king of Israel, I need you to guard your heart against that. You need one wife and you need to not become super wealthy because if you become wealthy, he gives him the warning. He says, you will think that you are better than your brothers. And a king who thinks he's better than his brothers is not a king worth leading. And he makes it very clear. And if that isn't clear enough, he gives super clear instruction. On the next verse, he says, hey, you're going to be prone to forget this. Let's make sure you don't. Look at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levites. Okay, 80,000 words. Chapters 1, 2, not chapters, books. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The whole Torah. King, you are to handwrite this out. You're to handwrite it because you are going to be prone to forget it. 
And here's why you need to follow it. Verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing doing them. So that, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Do you follow that? He says, okay, you're going to want a king someday because you're not going to follow me and you're not going to let me be the king. And when you want a king someday, in my kindness, I'm going to say, sure, take a king. But when that king becomes king, here's what he ought not to do. He ought not to become wealthy. He ought not to take multiple women as his wives. And he ought to copy this whole law and he ought to study it every single day. And in the studying and the following of my law, this is what will happen. It will learn him. It will teach him to have a heart for me. And when he has a heart for me, here's what's going to happen. It's going to go well for him, his household, his children, and the nation. And when he doesn't do that, things are going to fall apart. And what happens to David and what happens if you know the story, the kingdom falls apart, right? Next week, we're going to look at a lot more of the consequences of this sin and what happens in the fracture of his family. But what happens when we slowly do not do what God wants us to do is our families fall apart. The people that we're leading fall apart. There's huge consequences, there's huge casualties, and ultimately this nation that God was using as a voice to the world will split apart because one man is not faithful in following God like God asked him to. Compromise begins when we start with the small things and we don't do what God asked us to do. David did not do what he knew he ought to do. Second compromise, we see this is in uh, chapter 11 that we read in 2 Samuel. The first verse, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabab, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Where was David supposed to be? He was supposed to be at war. He was supposed to be with his men, right? It says it right there. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, every single theologian and commentator that I have read and studied has said, David was not supposed to be home. But here's the problem. At this point, David's life's going really well. He's right about 50 years old. And for the first time, he's not being chased by Saul. He's not hiding in some cave. He's not hiding in some field. Things are going well for him. A foreign nation just built him a home and he's going, I'll let them fight my wars. I'm going to live in luxury right now. I'm going to finally kind of breathe a little bit and I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labor and I'm going to let my men do the thing that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to stay home. And he knows he's not supposed to and he's home. Not only is he home, but it's late in the afternoon and he's on the couch, right? I'm just going to say a lazy man, a bored man is a dangerous man, right? That is true throughout history perpetually. God created us to be conquerors and cultivators. And the moment we put that aside and we just live in luxury, that's a dangerous move. 
And here's David not doing what he's supposed to. And he compromises and he stays home. And another compromise leads to a great fall. He gets up from his nap, takes a walk on the roof. He sees something that he wants and he takes it. I want to stop here for a minute. I want to talk about this moment between wanting and getting. I want to talk about temptation, right? There's a moment that David has where he wants something. And, And let's be honest, all of us want things at times that we shouldn't want. That is a natural human thing. We want things, and and there's all kinds of things that we want. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's uh, similar in nature to what David was wanting. There's all kinds of things that we want. And David had a choice here between the wanting and the getting. What do I do when I want something that I ought not to want? What do I do with that temptation? Right? When you look at the, the nature of David's temptation here, there is only one option with how to fight this want and get. When you look at Scripture, there's multiple places that talk about how to fight this battle, and there's only one way to fight it. Any guesses? You run. You flee. That is the only option. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, 2 Timothy 2, 22. You run. You flee. You think about Joseph, right? The story of Joseph. Joseph's boss wants to get with him. And what does he do? He runs away, right? He's not like, you know what? Like, let's like we're friends we're close let's not mess things up here let's just grab a drink and let's talk about it no he runs right when we're talking about temptation of this nature the only way to fight is to run and david does not run theologian dietrich bonhoeffer um, wrote a book called temptations uh, and in this he talks about this need to run he says this he says in our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and in its flames. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of power or fame or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not fill us here with a hatred of God, but a forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decisions are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation, to appease desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us, in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command. Flee. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lust. Flee the lust of the flesh. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than to flee. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. I mean, that's that's a harsh word and it's a good word, right? Here's the truth. We all have temptations and our temptations are all going in different directions towards different things, 
Right? I, I was talking to a friend the other day. He's like, yeah, I have a temptation. Recently, when I've been praying, I'm thinking about fly fishing. Right? And we can kind of laugh about that, but that's being honest. He's like, my heart and my affections aren't for the Lord in that moment. How do I flee from that? Right? We all have different things. We all have different temptations. And a question I would ask today is, what do you need to run from? Right? Don't think that you can fight it on your own. That is an enemy that you will lose to every single time. Run. David had a choice. He could have run. Right? He could have. Right? Sometimes you wonder, man, what would have happened to the nation if David didn't do that? What would have happened to his family? What would have happened to uh, Solomon? Right? All these things. What would happen? But David chooses not to, and it destroys him. It leads him down this path. It leads him down the cycle. And I would encourage you to read the story this week. I don't have time to get into it all, but it leads to, to more lies and more cover-ups. It leads to him having to kill this woman's husband to cover up his own sin. On and on and on this pain goes. And David doesn't confess. He keeps his sin secret. He keeps it hidden. And it eats him alive. Right? Just like all secret sin does. It eats us alive. Psalm 32, we hear these famous words from David. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Right? Maybe some of us know this. We've been in seasons, we've done things that we ought not to do, and we haven't confessed because we don't know what to do with it. If we confess it, it's going to hurt more people. Right? And, and we struggle. Like, Is this going to be helpful? Is this going to be hurtful? I've been struggling with something. Should I say something? Should I not? I don't see a clear path forward. And we feel the weight of this sin just like David did, and he doesn't confess. He doesn't acknowledge his sin, and he's wasting away from the inside. God, in his kindness, brings a friend, right? We all need friends like this. In fact, this is, this is Nathan. He's a prophet, and he comes to David, and he tells him this story. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, but you can read it this week. And he basically calls David out, and he says, David, you have not done right by the Lord. You've not done right by this woman. You've not done right by your wife. You've not done right by the man that you killed. You are in the wrong. You need to confess. And finally, David gets it. And he breaks down, and it's humbling, and it's embarrassing, and it's painful, and it's real, and it's freeing. Because what happens when David finally says, you know what, I was wrong. Verse 5 in that same psalm, Psalm 32, we read these words from David. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's the beautiful part, and here's where I want to end on. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Man, the Christian faith is not the Christian faith without forgiveness. Because here's what God does in the midst of our confession. He says, yeah, I already know. I already know. And I already knew before you were born. And I already knew before your parents were born. And this is why from the beginning of time, I had a plan that I'm going to send my son who's going to pay for your sin. And I'm going to forgive you. 
And in the forgiveness of you, I'm going to bring restoration and I'm going to bring wholeness and I'm not going to hold any guilt against you. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't consequences. We're going to talk about that next week. But it means that David can have total freedom and it means you and I can have absolute total freedom in forgiveness because of what Christ did for us. You think about forgiveness and you think about it's the greatest gift of the Christian faith because without forgiveness, we don't have the appeasement of God's wrath and we have eternal separation from him. Without forgiveness, we don't have salvation. But salvation at its core is confession meets forgiveness. And this is what we get in this moment with David. We're going to wrap this up here in a minute, and I'm going to read a theological statement. I'm going to read a summary of it, and I want us to think about forgiveness in how God's kindness reaches us towards this place of forgiveness. And then I want us to sit in this for a minute, and more than anything, I want us to ask, God, what, do, what is in my life that I just need to confess? Right? And, and what is in my life? Maybe, maybe I don't have anything that I need to confess, and that's great, but maybe I just need to be a little bit more thankful for the fact that you saved me for the fact that there are and were things in my life that needed confession. Let's close our eyes and I'm going to read this statement here. The Christian doctrine of forgiveness is that God has lifted the sentence of condemnation upon Christians for their sins through the death of Christ on their behalf and no longer counts them as guilty. Forgiveness is necessary both because God is just and because all humans are guilty of sin. Rather than simply ignoring the guilt of sin, God the judge became the one who was judged for the guilt of men. The guilt was punished justly, but the guilty received forgiveness instead of punishment. God did not unfairly or abusively punish his son, but Christ submitted to his father's will joyfully and willingly. This forgiveness provides the center of the Christian proclamation in the world and should lead all those who have received it to rejoice and praise God for his mercy and grace. Father David said, I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the iniquity, that word, the guilt of his sin. God, and, and as we look at this story, the truth is like there's a little bit of David in all of us. Uh, there's, there's small compromises that are happening all the time, and we all have them. God, we'd be foolish, we'd be liars to sit here and say, that there aren't small compromises that I'm making that are slowly building in me a false worldview that says you're not paying attention and maybe you don't care and maybe you're not around, which if we're not careful, lead to those large moments where we say, you know, I think I can get away with something a little bigger. And, and that just leads to all kinds of hardship and trouble. And God, for some of us, we're in the middle of that. And God, if that's us, I, I just pray that we would find the freedom to say, this is a place where we can confess and we can be honest and we can say, God, I, I blew it and I'm wrong and I'm sorry. And in the future, when I'm battling my want and my get and there's that gap of temptation, God, I pray that we'd be people who flee. We would recognize that some battles we can't fight on our own, that we will lose every time. But God, that there is a way out. 
Jesus, I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you that all of us in here who profess faith in you know what that's all about. Um, God, if there's people in here who, who don't know you yet and who are struggling, trying to figure out what to do with things that they've done wrong, I pray that they would see, Lord, that they can be forgiven because you've paid for their sin. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.